Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. Well, good morning, Calvary West, and welcome. My name is Ryan, and I'm on the uh, staff team here at Calvary West, and I am glad to be sharing the day with you today. First thing I want to do is just address some of the heaviness that I've sensed on many, uh, perhaps all of your faces, thinking back to what happened in the PNC Arena on Wednesday evening. Uh, I can just sense the heartbreak among many of you and just wanted to know, wanted you to know that God's love is uh, definitely with you for you today. And uh, whether you are happy, sad, or indifferent that the Tar Heels just barely eked by the wolf pack, I mean, just by the, really the skin of their teeth and about 45 missed three-pointers from the wolf pack, um, it is true that God's love is for you in Jesus. That's really why we're here. That's why we gather and celebrate here at Calvary West. We want to be a place of belonging and hope where people from you know, all over are connecting, all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different situations are connecting to the help and the hope that only God can provide. I love that we take the gospel seriously and really nothing else. We can have fun with everything else. And uh, this morning, we almost had a standing ovation for the Tar Heels breakout. But as the pastor, I had to shut that down real quick. So um, <laughs> we love to have fun together and, uh, and man, really connect with God and what he has for us. That's why we're here this morning. I hope that's why you're here uh, as well. Uh, if you are new, a guest or new-ish, I want to let you know right after the service today, we're going to be sharing lunch together. This is called Discover Calvary. It's something we do about every other month, and it's just a chance for us to get to know you, for you to get to know us, and for us to have a little conversation about what Calvary is all about and kind of what's going on here, how you and your family can connect with that. So through those doors right there, straight across the lobby and upstairs, is where we're going to be having lunch today. I think it's Taco Mama, maybe. Um, so I'm pretty pumped about that. would love to share a plate of nachos with you. Uh, if you want to get to know us, it's a great time to do it. We really believe that the church is a family. That's how the scripture talks about it. And so we believe that as a family, we should do family things like share meals and share our lives together. And so this is a great way to begin doing that with our church family. Kids, if you're in kindergarten, first or second grade, you can head back. You see Miss Jennifer there. She's ready for you for Kids Connect. If you're a guest with us, Kids Connect is a time for kindergarten first and second graders to connect with God and each other on their level. Your kids are welcome to go. Your kids are welcome to stay with you throughout the service as well. And if you are in elementary school and you're staying for the whole service, we've got um, uh, sermon series notebooks for you to take notes and some activities. If you want one of these, Meredith has them here on the front row, and uh, she would be happy to give you one. You're more than welcome to come grab one right now. My wife Meredith right here in the black and white polka dot. So if you need a notebook to take notes today, come and grab one. Uh, make sure that you share your notes with your parents, your grandparents, whoever brought you. Tell them what God is teaching you. And uh, that'll be a great thing for you guys to do together. Adults, students, we've got the Mark Scripture uh, journals in the lobby as well at the Next Steps area. If you want to grab one of those, do the same thing. Read and take notes as we go throughout uh, this sermon series, we are back in Mark's gospel now. Uh, in the first half, uh, or sorry, the second half of last year, the fall, we talked through the first half of the gospel, of Mark's gospel account, and now we're back into the uh, second half of it. Remember that Mark was writing down what Peter was preaching and teaching. So the words that Mark is writing that we're reading today are the message that Peter was preaching and teaching as he went out on God's mission. 
And he was sharing with people uh, who didn't have the same background, who didn't have the same experience with Jesus that like the disciples and the eyewitnesses have. You have to remember in the, in the ancient Near East, as the gospel goes forward, it's going to people who did not know Jesus, who did not see him, who never listened to him, who had no background knowledge at all, sometimes even of Judaism, the community that Jesus came out of. And so, man, there were people who just had no context for what Peter was saying. And what Mark starts to do is write down this teaching so that they can be reading it, studying it, getting to know who Jesus is and what he's like from the accounts of eyewitnesses to everything that Jesus said and did. And we saw uh, Mark wants us to know, like, man, Jesus is the king over God's kingdom. Who is he? What's he like? He is the king who reigns with all authority over God's kingdom. This is what Jesus said. The time has come. The king came with a message. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That message was for the whole world because God's kingdom includes the whole world and God is drawing people from the whole world into his kingdom. And so Jesus comes to tell us like, listen, you don't have to be on the outside looking in at what's happening in God's kingdom. You can be included in God's kingdom. That happens through repentance, turning away from your sin, and through faith, believing the good news about Jesus. The good news that, man, Jesus has done everything necessary to save you from sin and death, and to bring you back to the God who created you, who loves you, who wants the very best for you. And when that happens, when we have an encounter with Jesus marked by repentance and faith, it changes everything for us. It changes everything for us, both in this life and in the life of the world to come. And it's meant to. It's meant to be transformative in our lives. Every single part of our lives is up for grabs when it comes to the transformation that God is intending to bring to our lives through the grace that we receive through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is, man, it's just incredible. It's amazing. It's more than we deserve. And if you've had an encounter with Jesus, you know what I'm talking about, that, that feeling of going from death, knowing Right There is no hope for me in this life or in the life of the world to come to life, being alive in Jesus, going from a slave to sin where you cannot say no to being free in Jesus with a new power in your life, from ruling over your own little kingdom, right, like a tyrant with an iron fist, to being a part of this much bigger and much better kingdom that God is ruling. So it's a big deal. It's more than we could ever hope from, for God, from God. But if we're being honest, Having an encounter with Jesus that changes everything can also be very disorienting. And maybe you've experienced that as well. It can be very disorienting. That's because the kingdoms that we leave behind to come into God's kingdom are our kingdoms that we rule over and we have the final say. We talked about this last week. Who's to say, right? In, in your little kingdom, you're to say. And that feels good to us. That feels normal to us. That feels natural to us. That feels right to us. It's my life. And I should be the one who gets to say, but when we're called out of those little kingdoms and into God's bigger and better kingdom, things often feel upside down from what we're used to because it's not my way anymore. It's God's way. And God's kingdom doesn't, doesn't run according to my character or my values. It runs according to God's character and God's values. And that is just very different. Think about it. In your little kingdom, right, the first shall be first. In our kingdoms, that's how it works. The first shall be first. If you want shotgun, call it, you know, and, and hustle out to the car and get it. It's yours. If you want that promotion, man, do whatever it takes to get it or that raise or that job or that education, that career, whatever. Do whatever it takes. Go and get it. It's yours. It's right for you to have those things. The first shall be first. You think about it 
in our little kingdoms, it's better to be served than to serve. Because if you're the one being served, well, that conveys a sense of status and importance that feels really good to us, right? People are serving me. And that feels right. I'm the king over this kingdom. They should be serving me. That's good. It means I've accomplished something maybe in my life, or I've got this status in my life, or this wealth in my life, this position of power and influence in my life. Man, that feels so good to us. But in God's true and better kingdom, the first, Jesus says, shall be last. And it's the last who are first. And in God's true and better kingdom, Jesus says he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so we shouldn't seek to be served either, but to serve. Jesus says, actually, in his kingdom, if you want to be great, if you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to be something in the kingdom of God, make yourself the servant of all. Take the lowest place of the least honor. God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom that does not make sense to us. That is not how we normally and naturally do things. And it shouldn't be, right? In God's upside down kingdom, we go by his rules and not our own. And today we're going to hear Jesus give us a teaching from this upside down kingdom that maybe doesn't sound right, maybe doesn't feel right, but we're going to hear Jesus give it and we're going to see that we can trust that it really is better no matter what. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to hear Jesus talk to us about marriage and divorce. This is what the scripture says. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, typically we stop and pray here after we've read God's word, and we're going to do that in just a second. But first, I want to say a few things. If you've got divorce as a part of your story already, as a part of your family already, and that is just an incredibly difficult, painful road to walk. And so before we even start this morning, I want you to know God's love is for you today. If things are right now or not well in your marriage and it seems like divorce is a possibility or maybe even it's inevitable, you can see it coming in your life. I want you to know God's love is for you today. If you're a child who's experienced the heartbreak of your parents' divorce, a student, a young adult who's experienced the heartbreak of your divorce, and all the different ways that that's impacted you and your family, I want you to know God's great love, it is for you today. And the reason I say that is because sometimes when we're dealing with things that are difficult and broken and painful, we're tempted to believe this lie that if I just set that difficult, broken, painful thing off in a corner, leave it in the dark, then it might still be painful, but at least it's not fresh. Right? At least I don't, I'm not having to think about it. I don't have to listen to what other people say about it. I don't have to deal with the pain of it if I can put enough distance between that painful thing and myself. 
Now, I want to say this. As a church, we're committed to being a community where no one walks alone. And we really believe, right, that the church is a family where we joyfully bear each other's burdens. That if you're dealing with this kind of brokenness, you're not meant to deal with it alone. This should be a family where we prioritize the needs of others. It's not just what's good for me or what's good for you. It's what's good for us. And we believe that this should be a family where we point each other over and over and over again to the help and the hope that only God can provide. And so if divorce already is a part of your story or it feels like it might become a part of your story, listen, I want you to know you are not alone. God is with you. God is for you. The promise of Romans 8 that God will never leave you or forsake you is a promise that you can hold on to today and every day. And as a church, we will not leave you alone either. So with that in mind, we're going to pray and we're going to talk about what we heard Jesus say. Father, would you meet with us today? God, we confess that sometimes when we read the Bible, there are things in there that are harder for us to hear than others. Things that are more painful, things that are more difficult, things that are harder to trust, harder to receive, harder to believe. And God, in the midst of that reality, I pray that you would meet with us today. God, would you be so, so kind and gracious to us now? As we open your word, God, would you work in our hearts? Would you help us to understand what Jesus is saying here? Would you help us to see what that means for our lives and for our world? And God, would you help us to uh, have faith, God, that maybe feels impossible, but have faith to follow you no matter what's going on in our lives right now, no matter what our circumstances, single, in a relationship, married, estranged, separated, maybe divorced. God, would you help us to follow you where you're wanting us to go today? And so, God, would you be at work by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit among us, I ask that. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we talk about uh, really what Jesus says here to answer the question of the religious leaders, you know, is it lawful for a person uh, to get a divorce? I think we should talk first about marriage. And that's how Matthew records this exchange. Matthew writes down this interaction also between Jesus and the religious leaders. And, um, and, and basically the Pharisees ask, according to Matthew, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. And that's implied in what Mark is writing because there's this debate that's going on uh, with the religious leaders and the community that we're going to talk about in just a minute. But no, that's where the question uh, kind of comes from. I mean, that's a heavy question, right? That's a dark question to be asking. Is it, is it lawful for any and every reason to just divorce your wife? And so Jesus responds then. He says, haven't you read? This is Matthew, uh, his version. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And then he continues on. And what's really interesting about what Jesus does here is when he's asking this really contemporary, relevant question about right now. What is it lawful for us to do right now in the here and now, Jesus? Jesus does not look to the here and now for an answer. What Jesus does is that he turns to the past, the, the, the distant past. It's not uh, you know, the latest book on marriage. It's not the latest thinking in the culture on marriage that Jesus is referencing to give us a foundation for what marriage is, what it's for, what its purpose is. He goes back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and both Matthew and Mark record Jesus saying basically this exact same thing to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to the crowds, and to us as well. And it says that from the beginning... Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman that binds them together as one flesh for life. That's what Jesus is going to tell us that a marriage is. It's a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman that binds them together as one flesh for life. We're going to hear Jesus say it uh, right here in Matthew, or sorry, in Mark 10, verse 6. But at the beginning of creation, 
God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And again, this is an echo of Genesis chapter 2, so we're going to put that up on the screen as well. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. A few things stand out here as significant as Jesus teaches us about marriage. Marriage is meant to be the priority in all your human relationships. It's meant to be a permanent human relationship, and it's meant to have a special purpose. We're going to talk about those one at a time. That first one we see, marriage is meant to be the priority. When Jesus says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. For this reason, a man will leave, and by implication, a woman will leave her father and mother as well. Think about that, leaving your father and mother, the people who brought you into this world, right? That, that fundamental, foundational human relationship, whether it's your, your parents or your grandparents who raised you or another relative or right? Someone was your most foundational building block for you growing up, teaching you right and wrong and how life works best and all those things. And he's saying even a relationship like that that is that significant, that weighty, that important, that special, you leave even that relationship behind to get married. And leave there doesn't mean like you, you get married and you walk out the door and you never talk to your parents again, right? That's not the point of what he's saying there. He's saying that you have a new priority in your life. There's a new hierarchy at play in your human relationships. And so it's no longer your parents, or maybe it was for you as your friends that were your most important, most significant human relationship. Maybe it was a college roommate or your, your group of college friends or the people that you worked with or played a sport with, whatever, that were your most significant, most important relationships in life. What Jesus is saying is that when you get married, when you say yes to another person, you now have a new priority, a new hierarchy. And so outside of God himself, there should be no one and nothing more important to you than your spouse and your marriage. No one and nothing more deserving of your time and attention. No one and nothing more invested in by you more cared for by you, more sacrificed for by you, more loved by you than your spouse because now your marriage is at the very top of that list of priorities. It's meant to be the priority in all of your human relationships. But Jesus continues on and he says, for this reason a man will leave priority his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one, Jesus says. That shows us marriage is meant to be Permanent. It's meant to be a permanent human relationship. And that's why Jesus adds that little tag at the end there. It's not in Genesis 2, but it is in Mark. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why not? Why can't man separate what God has joined together? Well, it's because marriage is not meant to be a contractual agreement between two people where the, the terms of the agreement can be voided and null if one party doesn't keep their end. It's meant to be a covenant that lasts a lifetime. And that can be a little daunting because the reality is that the person that you marry today is not going to be the same person in five years or 10 years or 50 years that you were married to then. And you think about that, right? You're not the same person. They're not the same person. We change and we grow over time. We get new hobbies, new interests, new likes and dislikes, new ways of communicating sometimes. I'm not the same person that I was when I was 22 years old. That's when Meredith and I got married. And if she were to turn around one day and look at me and go, hey, you know, you don't care about the same things you cared about when you were 22 years old, right? Like you're not into the same stuff anymore that you used to be into. 
And so for that reason, I'm out, you know, like because you're not the same person. Well, that would be violating this permanence principle in marriage. The, the permanence of the relationship is what gives you the freedom, the security to grow and change and be transformed in all the ways that God wants over time, knowing, man, in 50 years, I hope my wife and I are not the same people that we were when we were 22. And so knowing that marriage is permanent gives space for that kind of growth and transformation in our lives and in our relationship. And that gets us to the last uh, point, last thought, which is from Genesis 2.24, that marriage has a purpose. Marriage has a special purpose. And, uh, you know, Moses is writing there and, and just recording Genesis, and he's, you know, you got this thing about leaving your father and mother, being joined together as one flesh, and he says something kind of weird, and it's like, and they were both naked and not ashamed. Like, well, that's a weird thing to say. Why would you add that in? Naked and not ashamed is, is code language for fully known and fully loved. For fully vulnerable, right? Fully open to another person and then totally accepted by that person. And if you are naked in other contexts, other relationships, you will experience a lot of shame, right? It's at the doctor's office when they're like, here's the paper gown. And you're like, oh, great, you know, and you just like pull that thing up as tight as you can. Right? If you've ever been naked outside of the context of your marriage, and there were other people there, I'm not talking about like skinny dipping by yourself, but there were other people there, right? you probably felt that, that shame, that embarrassment, that like, oh, this is not right. This is weird. And I need to get out of this situation as quickly as I can because other relationships weren't made for that kind of intimacy and vulnerability. Only the marriage relationship is made for that. And so you wouldn't be like that with your coworkers. You wouldn't be like that with the rest of your family. You wouldn't be like that with your friends or your buddies, right? There is only one relationship that can bear the weight of that kind of vulnerability, that kind of transparency, that kind of honesty, and it is the marriage relationship. And that's because the marriage relationship in that way is meant to mimic our relationship with God, right? Between us and God, we are fully known. There is nothing hidden from God. We are completely exposed our whole lives, our thoughts, our hearts. Everything is exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, the scripture says. And so there's, there are no secrets between us and God. And yet in Christ, we are fully accepted, fully loved, right? There's nothing that God looks and he sees in your life. and He's like, well, I would love you except for I know the truth about this part of your life, except for I know what you did that time when nobody else knows about, right? There's nothing like that between us and God. We are fully known and we are fully loved and accepted. And the marriage relationship is meant to be that one human relationship where you get a sense of what it's like between us and God and what it will be like with him for eternity. So you and I are fully known and fully loved by God. We are meant to be fully known and fully loved in our marriages. That's the purpose of marriage. And what we've just described, marriage as the primary priority human relationship, marriage as a, as a permanent human relationship, and marriage with a special purpose from God. That's the ideal, right? That's the goal. That's what it was in Genesis chapter 2, before anything was messed up by sin. But we don't live in Genesis chapter 2 before anything was messed up by sin. We live very clearly, very obviously, in the Genesis 3 world where things have been messed up by sin. In the here and now, right, where things have not just been messed up, but like massively corrupted, disrupted, thrown uh, astray by sin, marriage included. And that's the real world into which Jesus answers this question from the religious leaders, a world that has been, uh, that has been broken by sin, and so when they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
they knew the answer already, right? In their day, the answer was just yes. Yes was the answer. The most popular answer was you can get divorced for any and every reason, which Matthew kind of hints at in, uh, in his recording of this. And that was one prominent way of thinking about it. One, uh, one group said, yeah, any and every reason. And when you go back and read through, like, what were those reasons? Well, it's if, you know, my spouse messes up dinner, I can divorce them, write a certificate, and they're out the door. It's, you know, if, if they're no longer uh, physically attractive to me, write them a, a thing and, and send them out the door. They speak to me in a way that I don't like, write a certificate, send them out the door. Any and every reason under the sun, you could get a divorce. Another group, though, was a little bit more restrictive and believed that it was only for things that constituted adultery or actions that led up to adultery, some kind of marital impropriety. And so that was the debate of the day. Is it real restrictive or is it real, real loose, Jesus? We know that we can get a divorce, but what for? And uh, in that way, their debates sound a lot like our debates today around this topic, right? Like, why, why should you get married and why should you end a marriage? What are the types of things that are good reasons for either one of those things? And, you know, today you can hear people say, yeah, you should be able to get a divorce for any and every reason under the sun, including just that you fell out of love, your love has grown cold, or that you've grown in different directions, or that you're no longer the person you were when you got married. Those types of things are seen as completely valid in our day. On the other hand, you've got people who treat divorce like it's an unpardonable sin, and that there's no way you could ever come back from experiencing a divorce, and you've got to be shunned and looked at differently in the church. And, and both of those miss what Jesus says here. Both of those miss Jesus and his heart in this. What did Jesus say to them? What would he say to us in the midst of our debates? They ask him this question. It's interesting. Like, uh, look, at, um, look at verse 2. The Pharisees, these religious leaders, they come and they're testing him. Is it lawful? Is it lawful? And they're asking it in this way. It's like, is it a command from God to get divorced. And so Jesus puts it back on them, knowing that, no, it's not a command that you would ever have to get divorced, but that's kind of how they're asking the question. Jesus puts it back on them and forces them to answer, like, well, what did Moses command you? What did he say you have to do? And that, that opens them up. They have to then say, like, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. It wasn't a command. It was a concession. Divorce is not a command. It is a concession. And Jesus says that concession came to us because our hearts are hard. That's the way that he says, because we've got sin in our hearts and in our lives, because things are not the way that they should be, basically. The ideal, the goal, Genesis 2, that's always been before us. But again, we live in the Genesis 3 world that has been broken by sin and where that brokenness is, a, is very much a reality. So one man with one woman living as one flesh for life is not always the case. And so he says, because of our sinful, hard hearts, it's it, it, that that uh, sorry y'all that divorce is possible. So God allows for the possibility of divorce, even if He never desires that that be the end of a marriage, right? Even if He never desires it, He does allow for it. And there are lots of things like that in our lives, right? That God desires one thing, and that the reality for our lives is different. How we parent, right? God speaks to very clearly in the Scriptures how we should parent our kids, the types of things we should say to them, how we should raise them up and what we should set in front of them as most significant. There's an ideal and there's a reality of what God allows to happen actually for us as parents. All right, the way that I do my work, the way that I spend my time and my energy uh, in my work and in your work, 
right? Work as unto the Lord. There's an ideal and there's a reality. The way that I say my words, what my words communicate and how they communicate, right? There's an ideal and a reality. There's what God desires. And then on the other hand, there's what God allows. And that's an important distinction for us to make uh, when we think about it, when we're processing this, that what God allows and what God wants or desires are not always the same things. And that's what's true here of divorce. A couple of thoughts I want to share around divorce. He's come up from the scriptures. Some of the language was adopted from Kevin DeYoung, an article he wrote a few years ago. But four, four thoughts that I think can help us think biblically about divorce and the way that Jesus is talking about it here. The first is this. Divorce happens because of sin, but it isn't always sinful. Divorce happens because of sin, but it isn't always sinful. Divorce only exists because of sin and sin's brokenness and the way that impacts our relationships, our marriages. So we can say with confidence, right? Divorce always happens because of sin. It never would have happened in Genesis 2 world, but we're living in Genesis 3 world where sin uh, is present, is real, and so divorce is possible. At the same time, divorce isn't in and of itself always sinful. Jesus and Paul both give situations that we're going to talk about in just a minute where divorce is permissible even for faithful followers of Jesus. And that's important because when we're talking about divorce, we have to be careful to make that distinction. Yes, it comes because of sin, but no, it's not always sinful. That informs the way that we respond to people who are going through the difficulty of divorce. And, and church should not be the place man, where people are cast aside because of something like that and said, hey, you don't belong here because of, uh, because of divorce. It, yes, it came from sin. There's brokenness in all of our marriages, but no, it is not always inherently sinful. And when there is specific sin, right, that is leading to divorce, it is our responsibility to call that out and address that and call people to repentance. Yes, I want to be very clear about that. But that is not always, uh, that's not always the way that it works. And we're not always the ones who are in those discussions. So you might hear about somebody who's been divorced and go, oh, whatever. You know, that's not our place. That's the place of the pastors and the elders to deal with that uh, type of sin in the church. So yes, it comes from sin. No, it is not always sinful. And so we can lead with compassion when we're talking with people, ministering to people, relating to people who have uh, divorce as a part of their story. Second thought is this. Divorce is only a last resort and never the first response. Divorce is only a last resort and never a first response. Just because divorce is permitted in certain circumstances and for certain types of brokenness that we'll talk about doesn't mean that it should ever be promoted to the front of the line when it comes to dealing with a broken marriage or the brokenness in our own marriages. We know that reconciliation and restoration, two warring parties being brought back together and on the same page, that's always God's goal when it comes to the conflict that we experience in our marriages. That's always God's goal when it comes to any conflict. We know that because that's God's goal when it comes to our conflict between Him and us, right? So, you know, Scripture says in Romans 2 that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And when we repent, when we trust Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. And so we know, man, that's what God wants for us in Him. That's what God wants for us in each other as well, that we would be reconciled fully to each other, that our marriages would be restored. That's true of any human relationship where you've got conflict, but it's also true in a marriage. And it's only when those things are no longer possible, right? Because one spouse or the other is unrepentant and unwilling to engage in a process of reconciliation and restoration that we start thinking about the biblical grounds for divorce. You know, one of the best ways to make sure that you never get to that point where you're asking, hey, is it lawful for me to get a divorce? 
is by investing in your marriage all along. And, you know, before you evaluate your spouse and what they're doing or not doing, what they've done wrong or what they've done right, it's good to be asking the questions ourselves like, am I making my marriage my top priority? In terms of all my human relationships, is my marriage the most important one? In terms of all my interests and hobbies and work and passions, right, is marriage the most important thing to me? Am I making it my top priority? Or has something else maybe climbed up that ladder and now I'd say, well, yeah, actually it's my work that I care the most about. Or yeah, it's this hobby, this passion project, this thing that I love to do that I really functionally care most about. Or it's this other relationship. It's this become this other person besides my spouse that's the most important relationship with me. What, what would we say if we asked that question to ourselves? And then am I doing everything in my power to make sure that it's a permanent relationship, that it lasts a lifetime? Am I investing in the strength of my marriage? Am I doing things that build strength into my marriage and my relationship? Or am I doing things that pull the strength out of my marriage, that weaken my marriage over time? And then am I working to fulfill the purpose of marriage? Am I making sure that the culture of my home, the culture of my marriage is one where my spouse can be fully known, fully vulnerable, fully transparent with what they're going through and how they're feeling, and that they will still be fully loved and accepted, that they can come to me with problems and I'm not going to send them away or I'm not going to you know, tell oh, how dumb is that or, or whatever, dismiss them, but that they can come who they really are, what they're really dealing with, how they're really struggling, and they can know they'll be loved and accepted. And the reality is if we're asking those types of investment questions all along, we're going to be asking the divorce question a lot less in the long run. Saying that, that does not account for the other person. Right? I'm just talking about me and my part in my marriage, you and your part in your marriage right now. You can't control your spouse. You can't, well, you could try to manipulate your spouse, but it won't end well, right? But you cannot force them to do something that they don't want to do. You can't make them reciprocate. You can't make them ask these questions as well. You can't make them have a priority for themselves that they don't already have in their heart. But even knowing that, Right? If you do everything that you can do, then you stand before God and you say, God, I made every effort to honor you. I made every effort to obey you. And if it gets to that point one day, I know I've done every single thing that I could to be faithful and obedient. And that's a good place to be no matter what. If you do want to invest in your marriage and you're thinking about that, well, like, how might I be doing that? Or you're not married yet, you're younger, you're thinking, man, I might get married one day. A great book is a Paul Tripp's book called Marriage, Six Gospel Commitments Every Couple Needs to Make. Uh, we have Paul Tripp here like eight years ago, I think, and he did this as a weekend conference. It was incredible. We've got some in the lobby available um, just to cover our costs. It's $17. You can get it on Amazon. It should be about $17 um, unless they price dropped on it, on it after we like bought all those copies. But um, I think we've got like 10 or 15 copies in the lobby and we just wanted to have that available. Okay, if you're going like, man, well, how can I build strength into my marriage? What are some of the things I can start to do today? Grab that book on the way out. Third thought about divorce is this. Divorce is permitted. It is permitted, but only for two categories of brokenness. It is permitted, but only for two categories of brokenness. The first is this marital unfaithfulness. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 5 and again in Matthew 19 when he's talking about divorce and marriage. The word that he uses for marital unfaithfulness is like one author called it like a junk drawer type of word. So there's just lots of stuff thrown in there. It's the same word used for sexual immorality in the scripture. It's like there's a lot of stuff that it could be, but the gist of it is like any sexual immorality in or outside of your marriage would count as this type of marital unfaithfulness. 
And the reality is in the Old Testament, the consequence of that kind of sexual immorality or marital unfaithfulness was death. So your marriage ended because you died if you engaged in that kind of behavior. Uh, even when Jesus comes along, that's no longer the case. Israel's being ruled over by Rome. They don't have the right anymore to make those kind of uh, decisions and carry out those kind of penalties. And so the gist of it is like, well, where you would have died before, now divorce can be the end of that. Uh, your marriage ends in the same in the same kind of a way. Second category of brokenness is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He's writing to this church where it's like, man, first generation believers. So there are lots of marriages where one spouse has trusted Christ and the other has not. And that, of course, brings conflict. One spouse is living for God and his kingdom. One spouse is living for themselves and their kingdom. And that's going to bring them into conflict. And so he's writing to them to counsel them through that. And basically says, hey, even if your spouse is not a believer but they're still willing to stay married and live with you, stay with them. Like You don't know what God will accomplish in the future. God may draw them to himself through you, your faith. You're following after Jesus. So if they're willing, stay with them. If they're not, though, and they leave you, they're leaving you, then you're free from the marriage as well. If they're not a believer and they're leaving, they want it to be over, then you are free from that as well. Seems like there's maybe two ways you find out your spouse is not a believer. It's maybe really obvious. Um, one is that they tell you, right, and, and you know that they're not a believer, they're communicating that. The other is that the church tells you that they're not a believer, and that gets into some complexity. Like, we can't answer every question. I'm already over my time, I see. Uh, apologies. Um, but we can't answer every question about divorce, even, or divorce and remarriage. There's so much there. Wayne Grudem has a great book called Divorce and Remarriage, if, you're, if you know you need to do more thinking on this. Um, but essentially the role of the church would be, and this is really relevant when it comes to abuse, you know, what if there's physical or emotional or sexual abuse in my marriage? Is that grounds for divorce? Well, that's not specifically identified by Jesus or Paul as like a separate category, Um, but what we know is that the church has a role to call uh, people to repentance in situations like that. So if abuse is happening in your marriage, first thing would be, man, that is grounds for an immediate separation, between you and your spouse. Just immediately until you can be safe, that is grounds for separation, absolutely. Get out of that, call the authorities if that's appropriate, and then call the church and the pastor or elders uh, who are overseeing the church and let, that, let them get involved as well. Their role is to call the abuser to repentance. And if in calling the abuser to repentance, they remain unrepentant, then it's up to the church and the authority that God has given to each local church to say, actually, you are living like an unbeliever, therefore we will treat you like an unbeliever. Keller talks about this all the time. All of life is repentance. If you've trusted Jesus and you understand the gospel, man, there's nothing that you shouldn't be willing to repent of because you know that God's love for you is secure in Christ. Therefore, if you are unwilling to repent of anything, it's evidence that you don't know that God's love is secure for you in Christ because you're not trusting him in the first place. That's the gist of it. And so it may be that the church comes to you and says, hey, you've got this abuse between you and your spouse. You've been separated. We've been trying to intervene for the purpose of reconciliation and restoration, but your spouse is proving that they are an unbeliever by refusing to repent. And in that case, you would be released from your marriage or could be released from your marriage as well. The last thought around divorce is this. Divorce is always a cause for lament. Divorce is always a cause for lament because it comes from brokenness. It comes from sin. And so it is always right for us to lament that. Lament is, call, is crying out against the brokenness of the world while holding on to hope that God will be faithful and keep his promises. And so we can lament every divorce and we can hold on to God's grace. If you are, have been through divorce, 
or you're going through it now, or you fear that you may be headed that way, God's grace is for you. Divorce is never the ideal. It's never the Genesis 2. But we live in the real world of Genesis 3. And so in a world broken by sin, like everything that sin breaks, we can and should lament the reality of divorce. At the same time, man, we can look to Jesus for the help and the hope that only he can provide. Cam read this earlier. I want to put it up on the screen. The author of Hebrews tells us it's not like a suggestion. It's not like a, hey, if you're in the mood, this is a command from God to us. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. That means you're not going to God wondering if he loves you, right? You're not going to God fearful that he's going to send you away. You have confidence based on your good standing in Jesus. Not because you're so great, but because he's so great. That you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. And if divorce has been part of your story, if separation is part of your story, if a broken marriage is part of your story, man, that is a time of need that God has his resources available to you, his mercy and his grace. They are for you. They are available to you through Jesus right now. And so I want us to do as we close. I want us to just close our eyes, bow our heads. And I want us just to meditate on that verse for a few minutes. You may be single, this, this content on marriage, it may not apply to the immediate circumstances of your life. But what Hebrews says does apply. That you also have the command to approach the throne of grace. That you're to come confidently based on your status of being in Christ, in Jesus. Your adoption as God's son or God's daughter gives you the right to do that, to come to him with confidence that you may receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. So whatever your time of need today, even if you're not in a marriage, even if you're not experiencing trouble in marriage, you also have times of need. And I want to encourage you, and would you approach God confidently to receive the mercy and the grace that God has for you today. But if you are married, there's brokenness in every relationship. We sin against them, they sin against us. So I want you to just think, whatever your marriage is like, this may be the strongest it's ever been, this may be, man, hanging on by a thread. I want you to pray and trust and approach God with confidence today. Not because things are so great in your marriage that you deserve to be heard by him or anything like that. But because Jesus laid down his life that you might be brought near. God today wants to bring you near. If you've been through separation or divorce, if that's, that's real for you, this is painful for you, you're experiencing it again today, maybe fresh and new, your time of need may be a little bit more obvious. Man, it's right now. It's this moment. God's mercy and His grace, they are for you today. God, would you help us just to be sure, to be confident of your great love for us, of everything you've done for us through Jesus to bring us back to you, God, and help us to just think like this. If you would send your Son to die on our behalf, what would you not do now to help us? If you would send Jesus to experience all of that, 
the suffering, the separation from you, God, the weight of our sin and all of its consequence. God, if you would do that for us, what would you not do right now in this moment to help us in our time of need? God, would you help us to have confidence to see, God, you'll do anything. You'll do everything to be present with us, God, to give us that mercy, to give us that grace, to draw us to yourself, to bring us into a family where we can belong and we can get help. Would you help us to see, God, that you are working right now, no matter the circumstance of our lives, of our marriage. And God, would you help us to trust you, to have confidence in you. Cover us with that trust, with that confidence in God, his goodness towards you, his work in your life. I want you just to be thinking about maybe some next steps. And again, eyes closed, head bowed if, if you can. But if you are married, like I wonder what's a step you can take this week? Step towards your spouse. A step of investing in your marriage. A step where you're building strength into your relationship where you're going out of your way to do what's best for your spouse rather than yourself? What's a way that you can take a step this week? Maybe you, maybe you guys need to sit down and share a meal together and just have a conversation, just the two of you that you haven't been able to do lately. Maybe you need to just listen to a little, a little podcast from a faith leader that you trust and has good wisdom on marriage. Maybe, maybe you need to grab that book out of the lobby and sit down and read a few pages together and pray for God to be at work this week. What's your first step? What's the right next step? God, how can I, being confident of you at work, how can I join with you in that work and build strength into my marriage this week? If you're struggling in your marriage and it feels so broken and hopeless, listen, I want you to know you are not alone. And I would love for your first step just to be to have a conversation with someone. Either with Cam or myself after the service, somebody on our prayer team, set up an appointment for us to talk sometime this week, maybe to connect with a counselor at our New Salem Counseling Center. Maybe you reach out, text your small group leader, your home group leader, your Bible fellowship leader, and just say, hey, things aren't right. I need to talk. I've been trying to manage this on my own. I'm exhausted. I'm worn down, and I'm losing hope. Let your first step be just to talk to somebody this week who can walk with you. You are not alone. If you're going through a separation right now or divorce or you've been there, I want you also to know. I said it before, I want to say it again. God's promise in Romans 8 is for you. That he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Some of those same things I think could be your right next step. Talking with a pastor, talking with a counselor, getting connected with a support group like Divorce Care. Father, would you help us to see clearly our next steps? We know that you love us. We trust that you love us. We've read it in the scriptures. We've heard this command to come to you boldly. God, we are here. And Father, we pray now that you would move in our hearts and in our lives and our marriages. God, would you draw us to yourself would you heal things that have been broken by sin? 
God, would you move among us now? Pray that in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.